0: Hello my loves and welcome to another episode of Death of a Thousand Cuts. It's your old pal Timmy C here just doing a little intro for this episode's chat. I had a talk to author Emma Healy. You may have heard of her first novel, Elizabeth is Missing, which did fantastically well and deservedly so. But um on the day this goes out this is going out on the 30th of April so depending on when you're listening her new novel may already be out or it may be coming out this Thursday uh, Whistle in the Dark comes out this Thursday in the UK uh, her hotly anticipated follow-up and we talk a little bit about that we talk about what it's like to go from writing a best-selling Costa award-winning novel to starting again from scratch uh, how she found the voice the character of Maud in Elizabeth is missing, how she went about writing Whistle in the Dark and we talk a little bit about depression, we talk about research, we talk about putting sun cream on babies, we talk about cultural appropriation as well and representation and we're we're very much aware of, uh, I think we were both very aware of being white middle class authors having a convo and probably being the last people that people want to hear spouting opinions about the subject. But at the same time, the reason I sort of wanted to talk about it or at least not just dismiss the subject in a kind of embarrassed, digging our toe into the carpet kind of shuffling way is that I think it's it's important that white people talk about cultural appropriation and do some work on it right because we're the people who need to improve and it shouldn't be just left to writers of color to have to be spokespeople for that right so I, i i'm absolutely aware that uh it's not our voices you need to listen to and I'll put a couple of links in the show notes which, incidentally, if you don't know what the show notes are because I say show notes all the time and I realised that for years I didn't actually know what people meant when they said the show notes I just mean the text underneath the podcast episode whether you're on this in SoundCloud or iTunes you can just click through to the, like, the info tab and I'll have a, I'll have a bunch of links in there every episode describing the episode but also links to books and stuff like that so um i'll put a couple of links to books or articles that i think you should read uh on cultural appropriation and representation that might be a bit more informative than us talking about it but uh i just thought it was it was and it was interesting because uh she's writing in her first book elizabeth is missing she's writing a character who's an elderly woman who's losing her memory and we wanted to talk about how you get into writing about a life that isn't your own so i hope you enjoyed that of course I'm open to criticism, and if you want to you know, drop me a line at the usual place uh, and tell me some stuff that I could do better, I will listen and I will try to do better. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoy our chat. I certainly did. I mean, I know at the beginning of any podcast episode, no one's going to go, oh, I recorded this interview recently. Didn't really enjoy it, to be honest. It's a bit shit. But um, Emma is incisive humane, very witty, and a great talker and advocate for her work and the areas that she's interested in. So I think whether you're a writer or whether you are a reader who just loves to hear how we go about doing it, you're going to have a great time. I'll just leave it there and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer, one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, uh, kind of, at the moment, well, very sweaty writer, but that's not um, my only my only form. I'm also a, a podcaster, hello, that's why you're listening to me, and a nervous dad. Uh, today, it's not just me in the quote-unquote studio. I'm here with author Emma Healy, and we're going to talk, of course, about writing, but also about her smash hit book, Elizabeth is Missing, which um, I've read and is absolutely fantastic. I'm not going to uh, go on too much about it because I let her describe it herself. And going to talk a little bit, hopefully, about the book that she's got coming out in a couple of weeks, Whistle in the Dark, which is her next one. Hello, Emma, how are you?
1: I'm good, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Thank you so much for coming. Uh, it's a little bit... It's a little bit hot today, there's a slight, uh, it's not actually as bad as most studios, but it's a little bit sweaty in here. I'm sorry, I apologise for that in advance. No,
1: it's absolutely fine. I'm covered in um, baby sun cream because my daughter has been like, limpet like on me in the park. So Right,
0: so we, like yesterday was the first day that uh, I had thought, okay, so now Suki, my daughter, I've got to put sun cream on her for like this, this is the season where it starts and... um. I was anticipating a real struggle. I was like, "Oh, this is going to be a whole new level of challenge, slippery, angry toddler. Uh, and she, lo- she loves it to the extent that the crying that we ended up having was, was when I stopped and said it was time to she was like, "Oh, more, <laughs> more!" And, and putting it on, which is, it shows great kind of like commitment to, uh, to skin care regime but um <laughs> was pretty difficult and again she was like now she was like oil, oiled up like a turkish oil wrestler which made it really hard but to the control
1: sun cream is like a weird like it doesn't really rub in no <laughs> it kind of stays on because
0: <laughs> it's like factor 50 or whatever yeah. it was it was very it was very exciting it was i was, was kind of like i love the, the smell of sun cream as well it kind of like it has a proustian but
1: yeah, it means uh, holidays. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I was like, yeah, wow,
0: this is amazing. <laughs> so more than more than the sun or actually any kind of visual element of like going outside. I was like sun cream. Oh, now I feel like I'm on holiday. Anyway, uh we're not here to talk about the outdoors. We're here to talk about the the grim indoor work of being a writer. So, um can you tell us a bit for any of our listeners who might not have read your work or might not be familiar with uh, what you do um could you tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and how you came to be as a, a writer i guess would be the first thing
1: oh sure so uh i well really the way i became a writer is by going to uva that's how I, that's how i feel but um i think like a lot of writers i always wanted to write a novel and I started Elizabeth's Missing when I was about 23, and it felt like the perfect opportunity to write a book that wasn't autobiographical. I think that's what I'd been sort of stuck on before, writing something that was about a young woman in her 20s living in London and, you know, just super tedious. And then I had a kind of... One of those moments of inspiration that was really provided by someone else, because my grandmother has multi-infarct dementia and she said that her friend was missing. And it turned out her friend was not missing and that mystery was over very quickly. But I suddenly thought her her situation felt really, really clear to me for just a couple of seconds and it highlighted something about her life and I, yeah I knew that I could write a novel about that 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 would be a good starting point point. Um, and now when I look back I think god that was arrogant to think I could write a book about dementia about a character who was in her 80s and I was 23 and just I was like yeah I mean I don't know anything about it but I'll just do some research and start writing and yeah at 33 now I'm like would never attempt it but at 23 I thought yeah why not so yeah, that's an interesting development in the way I see writing. That, um, yeah,
0: because yeah, I guess the, the cliched writing advice, but also one that people return to, is definitely a touchstone: is write what you know. And yet you're talking about you know writing from your own life and feeling like, gosh, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that moved by this. I'm not that excited <laughs> about this and yet writing about a, an experience and a part of life that feels in some way so, so removed from your own experience, right, at that time. How, wh- why do you think that worked? I'm, I, I'm, you know, I'm saying now I think it worked. It, I really love the book. I So many people have connected with it and get a huge amount out of it it's you know been very very meaningful to a lot of people it seems to really be one of those books well I mean you know my mum works in uh, she works in uh, care for the elderly uh, in mental health care for them and she read the book was like this is incredible this is exactly what it's like she shared it with consultants who have all been going this is amazing this gets it she, they've now been sharing it as a way of um helping people who work in care for the elderly have that moment of empathy so at some level where you know arrogant or not it seems to have connected with people and really made a difference to them and yet it is as you say like you 23 you didn't know anything about it right so how do you bridge that colossal divide between your life as lived and jumping into a character who has, you know, who has been through a world war, who's lived all these years, any without having uh, memory problems, would still have a completely different life experience to you. And then that on top, top of that, what was your way into that? How did you start to bridge that gap?
1: Well, I did a lot of research. So, I mean, yeah, I'm slightly flippantly like, what was I thinking? But I did then work really hard. I wasn't just like, oh, I'll just make it up and it'll be fine. Um, And I think that is kind of a weird thing about writers, isn't it, that we're all like, I think, mostly fairly nervous about our work and neurotic about our work and and, uh, need like constant reassurance and all those kinds of things. And yet there's also a little bit of I think most writers that is pretty arrogant because we're... We're expecting people to pay attention and to listen to us or read read what we've written down. So uh, I think there's a little bit of that kind of strange um, tension, um, but also in order to make sure that we're not just like expecting it for no reason, we do also then work hard at it. I think most successful writers certainly would say they work really hard to make sure that they're there is something meaningful for the reader, and there is something enjoyable, and um, so yeah. So I I did that. I, rec- I did tons of research. And
0: what kind of research did you do? What form did it take?
1: Oh, so mostly reading, but um, also going to uh, care homes. So my grandmother has multi-infarct dementia, but I have several other um, family members who have or have had one form of dementia or another. So visiting them, talking to their carers. Um, and also then tons of reading i mean medical textbooks and uh, manuals for how to care for people with dementia and um dementia diaries and uh, i went to the welcome library and read about the history of the discovery of alzheimer's and all those kinds of things i could try and put it in context and look at how dementia would have been treated in the 40s as well and just see how how things have changed and so, yeah, I I did do lots and lots of that kind of research to make sure that I wasn't just making it up. And, I, and that was a lot... That was really part of the reason I started writing it was to try and work out what was going on in my grandmother's head because I had this conversation with my dad about dementia where we were trying to decide what we thought it was like. And he said he thought it was like being drunk all the time and I thought that was a bit optimistic. Mm. Um, but I had no way of proving my I thought oh no that can't be it but I didn't have anything to back up that feeling and so part of writing the book was um trying to trying to back up my argument with <laughs> my dad um so yeah so I I feel like I think w- when I was saying I was arrogant at 23 thinking yeah I'll just write that it's that spark arrogance it's the okay I'm gonna write a book and people are gonna read it and blah 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 even though actually at the time I wasn't sure anyone would ever read it because, I mean, how many people get published and how many people have been finished their book, I wasn't sure I would do any of those things. So, um, yeah, so I feel like it was just that first little spark of arrogance and then after that I was just, like, um, working as hard as I could to catch up with myself.
0: There is, There is something... There is something so sort of crazily audacious about thinking i'm going to tell an anecdote that essentially lasts a day <laughs> yeah. and i'm going to expect someone to listen to me for that whole time and pay me for the privilege as well but yeah. i do think it's one of those things where if it's successful and they enjoy it it feels like the most generous thing in the world it feels like you've given them this experience that you've poured all this time into That they then get in a concentrated form. So they get the benefit of all that research, all that thought, all that empathy, all those redrafts in a concentrated form. So they get like an extra part, like it kind of expands and becomes longer than it was and gives them extra time. Mm. But if it doesn't work... It feels like the most selfish thing in the world. It feels like someone's just barged into a pub and you're having a nice conversation with a friend and they sit down and start telling you an anecdote about something you didn't really want to hear about. And so I think that's for me, that's where that anxiety comes from, is knowing that on one hand, the, the, the potential rewards of what you're giving to people are really huge because we've all had books we've read and gone. Oh wow! I've, you come out of it and you feel sort of swimmy, and you look round at the world with new eyes. And we've also had books that you start reading and you go, "I'm not, I'm not enjoying this," and I actually feel unreasonably annoyed at the person who wrote it.
1: Oh yeah, like I mean, I've had people message me to say, "Thank you so many times, thank you for this book." And you think, "Oh wow, well, okay, yeah, I'll take that." Like I didn't really think about people being grateful, but I yeah, I also absolutely know that feeling of being like genuinely furious with a writer because I didn't enjoy their book which how unreasonable is that like, they weren't thinking of me when they were writing it they were deliberately trying to annoy me but yeah absolutely and actually I've had to really think about that since being published I'm more aware of there having been a writer behind the book and so when I'm so furious about a book not being exactly what I wanted it to be not just having this, like, unfocused rage, but actually thinking, okay, that's just, you know, trying to, like, step back from that and think, I don't want to upset anyone and, like, put immediately on the internet, like, whoever know, this is a moron. Because, <laughs> because just because it doesn't work for me, it doesn't, yeah. But, um, but, yeah, it is so personal, isn't
0: it? I think, like, as a reader, when you start out, uh, well, certainly authors always felt like this sort of, like, untouchable kind of, like, aristocratic class. And so whenever I was... And even as an adult, when I should have known better, it still felt like whenever I was angry at an author for not writing the book for me, the protagonist of reality, um, the not writing me a bespoke story, I still felt like I was kind of punching up, like, oh, they're out there in their in, in their kind of incredible life, swanning around writing books, thinking they're the bee's knees. Well, I'm here to take you down a peg or two. Now I've written something. <laughs> I, it feels it feels really cruel I think I I feel like writers are probably I imagine they're sort of slightly more vulnerable than that or certainly that they care and they will have wanted to do their best job and bursting in and saying this is rubbish they probably go well you I you're kind of pushing at an open door here I that's kind of what I've thought to myself <laughs> yeah. a lot on the time
1: yeah like I remember one of the first times I did a kind of bookshop event with another writer who was who's very like long established and one of the people organizing the event said oh yeah so when's your book coming out and he said when his next book was out and she's like oh yeah because I've actually never read any of your books um maybe I'll have to go and read them later and she just obviously thought he was so well established he wouldn't care and I could just see that he was like oh that was (laughs) that was a bit (laughs) sore like didn't have to admit that um but she just yeah it didn't didn't occur to her that he might be a little bit upset but she just never bothered to read it, it was like whatever nine ten books he'd published
0: because yeah that's the that's your that's a lot of time spent in a room going i hope people like this yeah. i hope people like this See, so you in uh, elizabeth is missing i i know you've you know you've talked about it a great deal because it's so many fascinating things to say but you've got Maud is is the narrator in that and she she's kind of a contradiction in a way because on one hand she's has all these problems with memories she finds it difficult to put things together in a well that's maybe that's not entirely true she's actually very adept at putting things at making stories out of things she's just partially confabulating hmm. from best guesses which is but at the same time she has these incredibly vivid memories of her past uh, in the in, in the forties, and so she's there's these two things. I mean, you know, on one level, she's this incredibly unreliable narrator. On the other hand, we have uh, she, you know, she's giving us this really rich kind of detailed background with lots of really really lovely crunchy specificity of, of you know engaging of the senses, and I just wondered how you came to find that voice because it's all very well you know reading uh diagnostic texts on on uh on the on the condition she has but people aren't a condition and what you've done is created a character who we empathize with and care about and who has sort of has uh rough edges and contradictions and is funny sometimes and is often very funny and and I wondered how you came to find that voice, and also because the story has a plot that's driving it as well, whether the, she, the character, led you to the story or whether the story led you to her character, sort of what that process was.
1: Um, oh my gosh, let me try and remember. <laughs> uh, so I think really a lot of the voice came from my mum's mum, who didn't have dementia um but who I was very close with and she was a great storyteller she had a fantastic she had a fantastic memory like ironically one grandmother really didn't and the other was like pinpoint like just could remember everything um and she was really good at telling stories about her life and she was quite a, a um disappointed person I think um life hadn't really gone how she'd wanted and so she went over and over memories and sometimes those stories were almost always the stories had a lot of lightness in them despite the fact that she was going over and over them because of being in a situation that she didn't want to be in um and it was interesting because she would tell a story that was really fairly domestic quite a small story quite often it was about something very tiny in her life But they would be brilliant there was something in them that you would make you listen and then my um, grandfather her husband would have a story that was the opposite you know what we would think of as being expansive and about something huge so he was one of the first people into belson in the second world War. he he went in as as the allied forces uh, to uh, liberate it and so had seen terrible important things I mean, he couldn't tell a story to save his life i mean they were so vague i still have i'm still really confused about exactly what happened because he would just he would tell you oh. so we went in and then the fellow was here and he said where oh, in the place anyway so we went we so we went in and then anyway we found this tin of something a tin of what a tin of something and you'd sort of get irritated if you asked for any detail. So you'd just have no clue what anything was. And, you know, all these like huge stories of um, like action and uh, like, yeah, amazing could have been incredibly important stories, but just like lost because he couldn't be bothered to tell them properly. Whereas my grandmother would tell stories about walking to school and they would be amazing and interesting. And so a lot of the voice came from her. And actually when she was dying uh, I knew she was um, kind of very close to the end and I got a phone call to come and visit her and um, I went to join all the rest of my family and I had about two hour train rides go and see her and I couldn't really concentrate on anything. I I was absolutely devastated and I couldn't read and I just didn't know what to do with myself so I just wrote down all the stories I could remember her telling me Um, and then sort of fact-checked when I got to the hospital. But also it was really nice to sort of show her that I'd been listening to those stories and that they'd meant something to me. And then after she died, I was left with all these stories and I felt that although I didn't really use them in the book, I had a kind of licence to depict someone else's time. I'd, I'd listened so hard that it didn't feel I was just going to be making something up, even though the actual incidents in the book are made up there was something that felt real to me there. So that was a huge part of the voice. Um, but I think the plot really came first and then I was looking for I was looking for that um, way in. And the authority to write, I think I'm very interested in that because I don't write strictly autobiographical. I don't think I could write something that's strictly autobiographical. I find it really, really hard because I'm not sure where you start your fiction then it, it's quite difficult not to be self-indulgent or for me it would be um, so then I think well how do I have the authority to write something and so I think you w- use the word audacity and I think that's exactly it. it's not really arrogance it's audacity and I think my the way I, I temper that is that I have to have some authority to say something and those two things the fact that dementia is so prevalent in my family I felt a little bit of authority or a little bit of license to write about that. And then being so close to my grandmother, having listened to her voice so, for so long and to really studying it, gave me the kind of other side of that, um, that license. And then obviously then you kind of create your own thing, but you just need that to start off with, or I need that to start off with. I couldn't have set it in a different, totally different country or, a, you know, if it had been someone with dementia but in 1920s India, I wouldn't have known where to begin, and I would have never felt like I was allowed to write that story.
0: That's I, A couple of things you talked about, They, it sounds like you're talking about, and I've heard other writers I've spoken to, and me myself, that have used the word uh, feeling, that moment where they feel like they have permission, mm. which is an odd concept, because there's not really any gatekeeper around it except yourself, uh, and also, often, you know, a lot of those things you say, you research, and then, you know, at least ninety percent of them, you you don't actually use in the text, but they're informing your sense that this is something you n- know now, and it's all you can, with it, with you know, with a slightly tempered conf- sense of confidence, you can work through it and do the business of fiction, which is. You know, making shit up, right? But right. like, but within that, and of course, like you say, with auto, autobiography, there's all sorts of things with permission because you're telling other people's actual lives in fiction. Actually, you know, that's your world that you've sculpted. I, I think it's so f- fascinating, and it's so it's something that doesn't get talked about a lot by people who are working on novels and haven't that that sense of doing enough research to feel like you have permission. To just start freewheeling
1: mm. and
0: making stuff up.
1: Yeah, like it, I, I think it's something that people are talking about a bit more with the kind of cultural appropriation or misappropriation. and that's really interesting because I think it does slightly tap into the neurosis of every author anyway. So it's a really um, it's really fraught because whether people agree or not, everybody feels like they're misappropriating everything and so I feel like that that's quite um a a sticky subject because of that and I remember being at UBA and um talking about this in a class um that Giles Foden was teaching and someone said something about like him kind of channeling Idi Amin you know how did he do it and how and and should he have done it and he said it wasn't a question of should it was a question of could you know if you can do it well you could do it. If you can't do it well, don't bother. And I thought that was really interesting, but I feel like we've got that was oh my God, nearly ten years ago. I feel like we've gone to a new place now. It's not it's not just could, it's not just do you do it well. There's all there is a question of whether you should do it at all. I feel like that that's interesting because it's it's an odd I feel very strangely about it because actually I do feel like I should stick to what I know and in, in a set up to a certain point. Um, and that I shouldn't be writing the story that really belongs to someone else and actually when I started writing my second novel the spark for it was something I'd heard had happened in a complete in the other side of the world and that I didn't see how the story would work here but I didn't feel like I had the authority to write about Australia so I felt like actually that was very much about about kind of realising I was out of my own territory and having to kind of Come back to my territory in order to be allowed to write the story.
0: It's it's interesting when people talk about uh, who has the right to to tell stories, and I think it's a really important debate. But like you say, it does key into a. I sort of sometimes wonder whether some of the slightly fraught uh, defensive hand wringing of authors saying, "Well, if you know, if we starts asking who can write what story, then soon nobody will be able to write fiction at all." I in my most charitable moments I, I do think that might come from, that comes from a place of uh, you know all of us th- constantly thinking about our whether we have permission to tell any fictional stories and and that comes to like you say authority which is you know that's uh, it's author is in the in the name there it's like yeah. you've got to convince people and take them by the hand of course I, I think like, G- Giles Foden is ta- definitely taking the uh, opposite position to Jeff Goldblum in uh, Jurassic Park you know his his line we spent so long wondering if we could we forgot to ask <laughs> whether if we should yeah. on yeah. the other hand you know Jeff Goldblum can be forgiven because he is you know there are raptors attacking the door at the time and and, and if, if we followed Jeff Goldblum's example there would be no there'd be no science of course we can't all be pearl clutching Luddites about genetic modification of dinosaurs but to bring it back to I, that's, I feel like this. I feel like I'm, I'm I'm on thin ice talking about cultural appropriation. Talking about like cloning raptors, I feel really safe. I don't feel like I'll, I don't <laughs> think, I, I don't think I'll make any kind of like career ending mistakes oh, on okay. uh, raptors. So I'm I I into
1: dangerous territory.
0: <laughs> no, not at all. I think it's really important, and I think you're absolutely right. And it's important that we talk about these things. And I think it's and people like me, you, you know, uh, like uh, white middle class cis male authors, I think we're the people who need to do the most work on it, right? And if it is uncomfortable, then that's something I've got to think about. And I feel I feel bad about it because it's definitely something I've made mistakes on.
1: But then it's difficult, isn't it? So there's this, a lot of the argument around cultural appropriation, this is really getting to dangerous territory, so you may want to cut yeah. <laughs> but the But re- I think the interesting thing about cultural appropri- appropriation is that a huge part of the argument is about making space. And that makes complete sense to me, that it's about allowing the, the really interesting stories about particular people or places or cultures to be written by the, those people in those places from those cultures. And there's lots of reasons for that, and, and I think that's totally reasonable. But what does that mean for a person who's just interested in that story and can and can write that story and do they not follow their inspiration or do they do they only write within their own culture and i think what it doesn't really take into account is the drive to write that i think most writers would say they can't do anything about you, you are desperate to write something you can't stop yourself if you hear something and you find it fascinating you start imagining the book in your head immediately so to say make space really means stop writing and for most writers i would say that was pretty impossible
0: yeah, so my i my sort of take on that is that the difference is i think there's value in insider and outsider narratives for example i think you know the nigel farage writing a book on him campaigning on the brexit Trail. Would I trust that as an objective, full picture of, of of him, the man, and his ideology? No, I wouldn't. I think he would know some things that say an embedded Guardian journalist following him around, who was left of centre wouldn't now one of those is an outsider narrative one of those is an insider narrative i think both have value and together you probably get a full picture right both of those would have biases and prejudices and blind spots that you might miss with the cultural appropriation uh debate i think the the main issue with what you're saying with someone going i'm really driven to write about this culture is if they are If they look like me, if they're white, middle class, and uh, cis male, um, then they are they're more likely to get their book published, and it's more likely to get sell. And it's more to have a kind of uh, Caucasian sounding name is more likely to sell copies. And I guess the issue is that when those books get read and sold and on shortlists for prizes and things like that that it, there is actually only a certain amount of space and so it's systemic it's certainly not all on the author's shoulders mm. readers have got to go and say is there a how diversely am i reading yeah, yeah. agents and publishers have got to go how is there, there there's a reason why publishers you know have to think about Hiring people to do sensitivity reads is because their staff are entirely upper middle class and white. So you wouldn't have to hire sensitivity readers if you hired diversely. So there's all sorts of things mm. I think there. That, that's how I think about it anyway. Yeah,
1: no, that's a good point. I guess because I'm a, I'm the, all I can control is the writing part. I think of it from the author's point of view. I mean, it's ridiculous. That I like it doesn't affect me because I don't, I don't tend to write, I mean, I write extremely middle-class white novels. I'm not really encroaching on anyone else's territory anyway. So I feel like, you know, it's ridiculous that I should even, I'm not really worried about it from a personal point of view, but I can only look at it from the author's point of view. I think you're totally right. There's loads of other things that um, that need to happen. But yeah, I just, I just find it interesting because I, the only thing I can do is not be taking up space i guess but i can't not write so then i'm yeah i'm just interested in that about what what i can do as a writer um yeah
0: i i feel like elizabeth is missing is it is just like wonderful it's i mean it's not a it's it's not a kind of issue-led novel it's not like an it's not kind of like a a public service announcement that goes (laughs) here's an ideology that I'm going to ram down your throat it's comes from it's deeply humane it's very funny and it comes from a character and it grows out of their story and their character now of course when someone is presented to us who is real and vibrant and alive and all the people around them uh, are, are, are alive and complex as well can't help but touch on issues and spit and get people thinking and reflecting on those things but it's not at all didactic and what I I think just having 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 an older woman in and, and saying look this elderly person is alive and has a life and has a personality and isn't just like a generic kind of like stock character in the background they're front and center and telling their own story to me that that is that is diversity because we get so few stories that are about the and especially, and in, in film, even more so, and in our culture, women over the age of well, forty probably, but certainly over fifty, are so marginalised that they might as well be invisible. Yeah. And so, to go, hey, the, hey, the, <laughs> we're all we're all going this direction. These are real people, and here is a person, and and they have a life. And to me, it was it's so important and interesting and exciting to read because it is about. Um, and it it does feel about like telling her story you know you were you wrote down the stories of two uh, sort of role models in your family you listened to them you did the research and I think most people talking about you made the distinction between cultural appropriation and misappropriation to go and say I'm going to immerse myself in this culture and I want to write about it fully in the knowledge that I'm going to make mistakes but then I'm going to do my I'm gonna do my best, mm. and that's what gives you the permission. And I feel like that just the whole book kind of sings with this, this sense of permission. I, I and I, I feel like I suppose the last. I'm sorry. I'm I'm kind of going off on of one, and I'm the least. I'm the per the voice is least. People want to hear is like, oh, what does the white middle class want to say about this? Uh, What does the what does the man think? I guess the final thing, my way of thinking about it is when I've read books. Like I'm a nerd, right? I've played video games all my life. I've retreated from having to have emotions by playing Super Mario. I love them, and they mean so much to me. When I read novels where there's a video game in it, and the person just clearly has gone, well, I'm just going to put. I'm not going to make, I don't know anything about games, but I'm just going to chuck this bit of nerd culture in and I can, and I, it's clearly wrong. And they clearly have never played a game. I am thrown out of the reality of that book because I, and and I, and I feel like the message is the implicit message is this book isn't for you. This is for literary readers who, and we don't care about this. And so by not caring about something like that, you're saying, Oh, well, I, I'm not writing for you now nerds don't matter in that sense. That's obviously a frivolous example. No,
1: no, but it's a good example because it's about hierarchy, isn't it? Because I was just thinking when you were saying that, that I've read quite a few books where Americans have written about Britain and got it wrong. But it doesn't feel... Like, it feels... All it feels like is that the author's not done the research. There's no emotion. You just say, you don't know anything about... Like, so I read a book not that long ago that was meant to be set here <laughs> and it just everything they were fundraising for their local fire station <laughs> like that doesn't happen yeah. here and there were all kinds of you know just little tiny awkward not and uh, not specific language she'd, ob- she'd obviously looked up things like sidewalk and pavement and stuff that was all fine but there were just things where you're just like no that's not how life works and, yeah um and then i remember reading another book where they a character, get, a character being called sir smith and it's like that's not how it works like you say their first name like have you never watched the apprentice like yeah. it's sir alan lord sugar like you don't once they're lord you put their last name in it's, it's, it's
0: crazy set. how many <laughs> british people know like courtesy titles yeah. like instinctively you
1: can't help it like it's so much part so not knowing that and putting that in your book showed that you were you hadn't done your research. Like it showed, this American had didn't know something that we all know, that we just know without even knowing how we know it. But I didn't. There was no sense that there was a kind of um, like you couldn't you couldn't take offense or you couldn't uh, you couldn't feel like you were being belittled because there wasn't that hierarchy. It was just one big. Major power not really knowing something about the people of another major power. Yeah, we
0: don't have a system of we don't have a history of systemic oppression by Americans. They're just <laughs> right. kind of they're they're just over. In fact, it's kind of been the other way around. They kind of <laughs> broke free of us, and we're kind of like, oh well, it's all right, I guess. Uh, you know, gently uh, uh, making some mistakes, and it throws you. Of course, it throws you out the story. You You, yeah. you go. I now the whole reality of this feels slightly wonky to me.
1: But, but yeah, I didn't feel like the the writer was just like you don't matter. It was just like oh, this is embarrassing for you because you do not know. Whereas yeah, if you're a, a real gamer, a lot of literary writers will be like you don't you don't matter. You're not intellectual enough, and so you can totally feel like that is that feels offensive because
0: I should say I am not in any sense suggesting that uh, gamers are a um, uh, a marginalised
1: no no group, but, but it's a good example because it's not su- it's not super emotive but mm. it is the same that it's the reason why that that was a- really annoying for you is exactly because that we have a hierarchy of uh what's what's like more intelligent what's yeah. the, what do intelligent people do they read they don't play video games which is crap but that's what people feel like
0: of course and and, and so and then i just imagine that like i imagine that kind of scaled up to Uh, There's certain places you can't go because, you know, you'll get abuse or beaten up. You, there's certain areas you can't, you can't go out the house to get a pint of milk because you might get people uh, sort of catcalling you, all these kind of things. And then have a book where someone's writing about you and your life and then getting, maybe even getting praised for like, oh, wow, this is a real, and and that for me is the, now, of course, I'm petrified of getting things wrong but i guess i i just think it, i i think it's just something worth talk like it's it's great people talk talking about it you yeah, know and then important. do it and admitting and admitting going they they don't know and i hope also the flip side of that and i think it's so important you kind of bring it up is is also that people who you know if you are writing and you come from another culture you're not expected to constantly be a uh, a sort of salesperson for that, and come and yeah. be this kind of like exoticized other. And you know, okay, so you're a Chinese writer. I want you to inti- only write about a you know Chinese life, and you're not allowed to write a space opera set with a kind of multi ethnic cast.
1: Yeah, and that's definitely come up when the people have been talking about the immigrant novel, where there's so many times I've read in reviews they say, "Oh, the bit that was set in Ghana or China or." Uh, I can't remember there's somewhere else recently that I read it that was really really engaging but when they got to America or Britain oh my was less interested and it's like oh right so the bit where you felt like you were on holiday that, yeah that <laughs> and just that that said something so much about how we see those books like what we want what some reviewers want from them
0: absolutely the kind of like expectation set and the thing that a writer again who looks like me who has my sort of perceived background I'm allowed to be sort of like a blank slate I'm allowed to be Mr Generic people don't say oh is this autobiographical because they I'm just author and then I can write about whatever I want and I don't inflect that material at all so I I think you know maybe also this is like um, you know white middle class writers are sometimes like getting a little bit of a taste of what it's like to be on the receiving end of going oh you're a, your ethnicity is now a big thing in how we perceive this your mm. uh, gender is gonna uh, affect this i think it's and and you know you t- think thinking will develop on it but um
1: anyway i feel like we've gone way yeah sorry this. yeah I've, probably we like you said two white middle-class people maybe not the best people to be having this like massive ab- ab- absolutely
0: i will i will try and put some links in the show notes to better uh, conversations <laughs> about it i mean like like yeah like i say not authorities on it just uh kind of like muddling our way through and trying to it's just re-
1: interesting because we care like I, I think we both genuinely care about diversity and feel like when we're, we're trying to find where we can help and not hinder and but also how we can carry on writing and write things that people want to read and like you say it's interesting and important that we constantly question ourselves and even if we sound like a total idiots, yeah
0: <laughs> That's, that you summed that up much better than, than I could so could you so you you do this you do this novel it does really it does really well uh and and then it's not that that comes to an end but it's done right and it's out there and you're kind of spat out the other side of that process. I'm just wondering, like, what was it like then starting again? You know, you you then have, like, a blank page.
1: Oh, my God, it's so hard. Um, So I was just recently talking to a friend who her second novel was coming out as well, um, and she said she felt like this second novel of hers feels like her first. And when she said that, I thought, oh, that's exactly what I felt like, because... A first novel, certainly because Elizabeth Missing was genuinely the first novel I ever wrote, not just that I had published, a first novel is so um, kind of organic and slow and, or certainly for me, and for a lot of people I know, it's this kind of, it's the moment you're sort of teaching yourself to write as well as building the novel. And so there isn't a kind of moment when you're aware of it not being real. I mean, obviously, I didn't think Maud was a real person. I, like, I'm not one of those writers that feels like the character speaks to them or whatever. But I I wasn't really aware of creating her, I guess. Mm. Whereas the second novel, there's all those feelings of, are the people going to read this? Definitely, because I've already got a like a publisher and they already want to... Published, that you know, they're ways they're like telling me that I'm running out of time and that the deadline's looming and all that. Oh, kind of th- oh thanks. Oh, <laughs>
0: yeah. well, I, so, so I was really feeling a bit blocked, but that's that's really <laughs> yeah. helped me through. <laughs> yeah. Like, up, thanks, cheers. Um, yeah. Your passive-aggressive email has actually really helped me this morning. I've just knocked <laughs> out three thousand words off the back of that. <laughs> yeah.
1: So you know, so there's all those feelings like, okay, I know that this is going to be read, and that in itself makes something feel more fictional somehow, but also. The first book is the only book you can write because it's the only book you've ever written. And so there's a kind of sense of it being part of you. Your second book, you're kind of aware that it's not the only book that you're ever gonna, you know, you're, it's not, just isn't the only book you're ever gonna write. This character isn't the only character you're ever gonna write. So you're just making up a character and you've made up one before and this is another one. And it just feels so arbitrary. And for me that was the most terrifying part. I could not I could not believe in the character for ages. I mean, I scrapped two projects between Elizabeth Is Missing and Whistle in the Dark. Two sets of about thirty thousand words. Just because they weren't real. They were just characters that I'd I'd made up and it was super embarrassing to think that I'd made up a character and that I wanted other people to get involved. It just felt um so generic did, and- did you
0: did you feel a bit more like did, did you feel a bit more like you were sort of kind of like manipulating people I'm not sure if that's quite the word I want but like that sense that oh people like will buy into what I say now and or was it that you had a greater awareness of the or consciousness of the audience watching or
1: yeah maybe a little bit about the audience I mean probably more than anything I think about how I'm feeling about it, it sounds mm. really self-absorbed I do I generally do write with a reader in mind I'm not yeah. someone who writes for themselves but I but I also think that there has to be a reason for me to write um like I just sometimes think you know how many millions of books there are in the world and we really don't need any more books so if I'm going to write a book it's got to feel like I'm wanting to say something I'm going to be saying something that's useful or or feels that has a con- real connection to people, mm. and just making up a character to tell a story just feels pointless to me. It doesn't mean I think other people should have this rule. <laughs> in fact, I don't advise it. But I, I really feel like for me, that's a huge part of it. That if I'm going to write something, it better be there. Better be a good reason. And in fact, one of my um, editors, my German editor. Said that she never invites any authors to the London or Frankfurt book fairs because they always get a kind of existential crisis where they're like, There are so many books in the world. Like, have you ever been to the London book fair? And I, see, I have,
0: yeah, 10 see, years ago. Right,
1: I and you see how many books are being sold every minute, and you just think, Why am I doing? Like, we don't need, like, everybody stop, like, pencils down, let's not write any more books. It it's was ridiculous. really
0: intense. <laughs> it was really intense. And I went there, I I'd heard that like if you go there and you have like author on your badge you get a different color and you're treated as a kind of pariah. So I made <laughs> up a publishing company as went as a publisher so I had loads of pu- authors approaching me trying to sell me their sort of pitch their books to me. No way. And it was um it was it was a real it was like you say. It was kind of like a. It was kind of like a firewalk. It was a real intense experience.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's insane. So I can see why she doesn't invite any of her authors there, and that totally feeds into my feeling that if I'm going to bother, it's got to be for something meaningful. What meaningful means? Because don't like, don't with Elizabeth
0: is missing, it does seem. From what you've said, it seems like a really. It was part of it was you were answering you're winning a bet but you were answering a question like there was a part of it that you the 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 research you were trying to understand something and come to terms with it and you definitely although you weren't necessarily uh writing the end product for yourself that the exploration and the journey it was it was a question that you couldn't just answer in a sentence
1: yeah and and
0: that and you were there was a there was a pursuit of what does this mean and that quest for empathy uh involved the complexity of the dialectic of fiction. You had to have a multiplicity of voices. You had to have a multiplicity of times to really get this character. And you had to... We had to see her dealing with stuff for you to understand it. Uh, I'm putting words in your mouth. I'm so sorry. No, that's
1: totally true. I think that's exactly true. And I think when I was starting to write the second book, I didn't have something that I wanted to explore in the same way. I started two different things. One was about... uh, a female artist because I was obsessed with Anna Mangetta and I wanted to look at that kind of kind of feminist art I guess um but I wasn't really sure what I was getting at and it felt quite rarefied um and then finally I started on this book and I think again it was a, it was had a very similar feeling to the way Elizabeth's Missing started which is that I had a kind of spark of a plot and a voice and the kind of issue if you like but the thing that i felt gave it meaning all those things suddenly came together and i thought okay yeah that's the beginning of the book and i saw jennifer egan give a talk a little while ago in, in belgium randomly and um she said that sometimes when she has here's a little piece of information or has an idea or something that there's something that she feels I'm totally misquoting her but it's something she feels that or that she's learned to pay attention to that feeling that that may be a book there may be a book in there and I I thought that was really nicely described although obviously she described that way better than I have just there just totally mangled her words (laughs) but I had that same feeling okay suddenly here are all these things and they've come together and they've created something rather than me just like plodding away writing something that I might I might chortle at but I wouldn't feel was going anywhere so
0: do you think and do you think writing those ones before did anything to hasten hasten along the ripening of the uh, the final idea that that's become uh whistle in the dark or i'd love
1: to i'd love to think so yeah
0: of course like this is i mean i'm I'm sort of desperately i'm going like tell me that like every word we write is necessary and not a word is is wasted but i i can accept if if the truth is you, you know maybe not maybe sometimes you just have to find out that something's not all
1: yeah i think that my writing got better because i'd been writing like anything you practice so having practiced the first third of two other novels meant that writing another novel um definitely became a little bit easier and for every like everyone i've spoken to certainly like um in the my um agent's office and uh, the publishers and lots and lots of people and um, journalists everyone I've spoken to so far has said that they think Whistle in the Dark is more sophisticated and a better book um, better written book than Elizabeth's Missing so hopefully (laughs) holy shit (laughs)
0: okay <laughs> okay i'm just gonna i'm gonna switch jobs now that's fine <laughs> wow that's really good no just because a little bit is missing i'm not i'm not being i'm trying not to be sycophantic but it is a really good book oh, and <laughs> so like, going, oh well i'm just uh yeah, it's just even. I've done even. I've just kind of excelled myself. So no, I think that's no, amazing. Sorry, that, I, well, no, no, not I'm teasing. Sorry. Be,
1: I mean, God, they may all be completely wrong. So like, they might come out and everyone's like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" <laughs> this is true. so. I'm like, that's really mu- very much the proviso. Probably these people all want to be nice to me anyway. But I do feel like I was, I was, uh, I was a better writer after having practiced two other novels whether anyone else agrees beyond my people who are like like writing to me or telling me nice things because they represent me or actually publishing my novel or whatever i,
0: I think people have generally got better things to do with their life than lie to somebody's <laughs> face i think if they don't like something then you just get a kind of like a, a diplomatic radio silence rather yeah,
1: than yeah. No, no it's good it's great we're happy with it yeah rather than... no, uh, so true. can
0: you tell us a little bit about uh whistle oh, sure. in the dark then
1: So Whistle in the Dark is about a woman in her 50s and her teenage daughter has gone missing for four days and the novel starts when the teenage daughter is back, has been found, uh, and is pretty much okay. It's kind of bruised, has some bad scratches, but seems pretty much okay. And she's been missing in the Peak District um, and then refuses to say what has happened to her. And that's kind of the... Um, heart of the book is just this tension between the mother and the daughter and whether the mother is ever going to find out what happened to the daughter in those four days and whether she can leave it alone or she's going to pest her daughter until they have no relationship left. And uh, the book really explores teenage depression and the effect it has on a family. So uh, Lana, the the 15-year-old daughter, has had a history of teenage depression and Jen, who is the mother, has been dealing with that and worrying about that and has been made kind of fairly neurotic by that um and then the kind of the crisis point has been this um these missing days um and then the, yeah the rest of the novels about their relationship and and how they will fare i guess and whether she will find out yeah she will find out
0: which um <laughs> so like and is it is it from is it a uh, First, is it first-person narrated again?
1: It's third-person, um, but all from Jen's point of view. There's two little bits that are kind of in Lana's voice, um, things that she's written. But um, other than that, yeah, it's all third-person limited.
0: Um, I'm, I mean, I, I obviously, I know you kind of, like... I've not read it yet, but also you, I know you're going to sort of da- dance around possible spoilery stuff so people can come to it fresh and with the whole experience intact. But... What what was the... Do you think there was... You know, with Elizabeth Is Missing, there was this question, this partly an empathy question about like what is it like to be in this situation. What was the thing that was dry... What was the thing you were trying to answer for yourself in this
1: Oh Well, so weirdly, I mean, it feels so similar. I almost feel like the books are companion pieces because for Elizabeth Is Missing, you're right, I was trying to work out what it would be like to be my grandmother almost. I mean, that's extremely simple way of looking at Mm. it but that's kind of what I was thinking and uh, in this novel I was trying to work out what it was like to have been my mother so I had very bad teenage depression um, and was effectively sectioned when I was 15 um, and or they certainly threatened me with it and I had to go into a um, psychiatric unit brief very briefly thankfully Um, and I was just interested in what my mother had gone through I suppose because I knew what I'd gone through it's kind of I find it quite boring to I'd find it I'd have found it really really boring to explore teenage depression through the eyes of a teenager because I've done that I've lived that yeah um but I was much more interested in what my mother must have gone through and although Jen is not my mother and my mum has said, please make sure people know that hmm. <laughs> um she. She's someone that I have like a huge amount of empathy with. This character who only wants the best for her daughter and yet somehow not quite able to communicate with her effectively. Um, And Lana is, you know, a, a fairly normal teenager in most ways. She, I've tried to make her as, you know, as real as I can. So she is sometimes lovely and funny and And not awful to be around and sometimes she's a right little shit (laughs) and because I was I was awful I was terrible (laughs) so I I was interested in that that was my question I guess and I think teenage depression is something that seems to be getting worse seems to be something that's in the news a lot seems to be I mean it's a strange thing because I started writing this book and then the last year or so um, while I was finishing the book there's been more and more about especially teenage girls and the things that they do to themselves and the pressures they're under so I was really interested in that but in the same way as Elizabeth is Missing I wanted it to be quite a universal feeling book so I was saying earlier that I write kind of white middle class books and I, I felt like w- um, for this book particularly a lot of that uh, the kind of white middle classness was a uh, stripping away of anything that could be used to point to a reason for depression. So, you know, Jen and her husband are together and are happy. I didn't want it to be like, oh, the, te- the teenage girl has depression because her parents are divorced. Mm. And they're all, I didn't want it to, I thought when I started writing one of the other books I was writing, um, the her wife was half Irish, half Caribbean, sort of based on someone I know. and. Uh, I didn't want to use a character like that for Whistle of the Dark because I thought then you'd say, oh, well, there's some kind of racial tension in the family. That's why she has teenage depression. And I wanted to, like, strip out anything that could be pointed to. Like, they, they're fairly economically financially secure. So I didn't want to say, oh, well, the dad's out of work. That's why this daughter has uh, teenage depression. So I, I felt almost like I was making them as sort of bland as possible. Yeah, and it sounds awful, but... Um, and not really my situation, I grew up in a single parent household and so it wasn't me either. Um, And I also didn't want to do other things, I didn't want to make Lana uh, extraordinary in any way, she's not wonderfully beautiful, she's not hideously ugly, She's, uh, she's not amazingly gifted. She's also not stupid, you know. I wanted to keep them like as average in the kind of British average, I guess, as I could because I didn't want anyone to be able to point to a reason for a depression. Because I feel like that, um, how I felt about it was that it was a total illogical. There was no, I couldn't have pointed to a reason at the time. So I didn't want that for this book. Um, yeah. It's, I've just gone off the piece together.
0: No, no, that's perfect. No, I'm just reflecting because I had severe... My depression started when I was 15 as well, so I'm just, you know, thinking... It was, I'm thinking back to my own experience of it, and it is a bit like a sort of, sort of... I don't know about your experience, but it's almost like an... It's not something I could have articulated at the time, but it's like an extra character joins the family almost like it's there's this it's very and that pressure of and i think this is true of anyone who's suffering from mental health issues but that pressure of um feeling feeling the pressure of like being still aware of other people's feelings and not being able to and feeling the pressure of managing those but also being someone who cares for someone with de- depression or a mental health issue and feeling that gap and wanting to help them but also being a human in a situation where someone you care about is suffering and so not being able to help being imperfect having human reactions to seeing them suffering and and I suppose the other thing that it really kind of opens to me is you know having just only recently become a dad myself those tension those those anxieties we have as a a parent where you don't have control and at some stage there'll be parts of your child's life that are mysteries to you and have you are they going to be okay have you armed them to get through the world is that even your responsibility or something you can do so like for for me you know just you talking about it it brings up all those it brings up all those things of just thinking about how we and and the kind of like that and it's and also that kind of unknowability of, of someone else especially when they're close to you but then how some of these things, like depression, can you can kind of be a mystery to yourself as well in those
1: situations. Yeah, totally. I feel like depression is talked about as being an extension of sadness. Yeah, you know, people are sad, and that's kind of the the extent of it. And actually, it's not. It's a ma- it's a madness. Like I like it's totally illogical. I used to when I was planning my suicide, think, oh, I'll do it in the morning because then my mum will get the day off work. I mean, like that's like that's actual insanity that's uh, that's total like there's nothing logical there like as if she would have be like oh great i'll get the day i mean just bizarre that i could even think that but at the time that seemed reasonable
0: i mean it's certainly a framework of i would argue that it is very rational it's just based on a premise that is i don't deserve to live and sort of people won't people won't care (laughs) who won't care it's like it's a very skewed but it's within the framework of like a bunch of faulty assumptions it's hyper-rational you know that Mm. thing of like people um, taking their own lives and I remember when I was really depressed and I went and uh, I I ended up going down to a place It, it I went to get going down to uh Penzance and I was really I was really nervous about um, meeting the guy who ran the ran the B and B because um, I wanted to like look bumptious because I didn't I was worried that he would think I'd come to the end of the line to to kill myself and I hadn't but I was like I was so conscious of like doing things like making sure I was wearing my shoes because I'd heard that like when people are going to like jump off something they take their shoes off and I knew I was feeling really depressed and I I kind of. I had this, I mean, I had a weird experience of it where, like my doctor said, uh, you're the most depressed person. I've, this is the worst case of depression I've ever seen in my, my career. And that was like actually a turning point for me Jesus because I felt Christ. like, I felt like I'd, I'd made an achievement. Like, I, I like, And then I thought, I'm going to be all right. If I can like go inside somewhere deep inside, I wasn't, I sort of wasn't moving, but I was just listening with my head down mutely. But I kind of, I felt something inside me go, oh, I've actually excelled in something and it was a weird, I, now looking back, that was a turning point where I was like, oh, well, like I've done something oh, okay. right in my life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. But it, it's, it's, yeah, and it is difficult for people to under, understand. And I think there's a lot of well-meaning uh, campaigns about mental health that are kind of like, check how your mate's doing, sling an arm around his shoulder and say, do you want to go for a pint and talk about things? And I think those are important, but there's, you know, depression is a spectrum and it has different pres- it's not even a spectrum it's broader than that it has so many different etiologies and presentations and well and again you're not writing a book where you're saying hey everybody uh, here is the one true key to depression it's like and th- it happens to human beings in circumstances in situations and
1: yeah I think that's totally it like it's it's about exploring something and asking questions and letting the reader have that same experience but not answering this question so a couple of early readers said oh I wanted to know at the end why she was depressed and I was just like no that's sorry that's the only thing I can't change because there isn't a reason like I can't I can't make up a reason because it diminishes the reality of depression kind of
0: lets us off the hook really if you go oh so it turns out just don't have this one life circumstance and depression won't happen yeah it's like well you know it can have a a stressor can trigger it but sometimes it doesn't sometimes the stress of being a human being in the world right yeah
1: especially I think for teenagers so there's a a piece of research that came out a little while ago about how teenage depression is linked with uh, chronic fatigue chronic fatigue syndrome and I just felt when I heard that like oh yes that totally explained so much. I was just completely exhausted. And I don't think I really felt like I wanted to die. I just didn't. I just was so tired. I couldn't live anymore. That was completely it. And that there's no, there's no cure for that. I mean, like, you know, there's that's not like a circumstantial thing. It wasn't that I was Working in a coal mine, and if I just stopped working in a coal mine, I'd be less tired. It was just life was tiring.
0: Do you think writing is a good pursuit for? Is good for mental health?
1: Oh my god, <laughs> that is a huge. Uh, I think yes. I think yes. I think it depends on your kind of writing, maybe. Um, it is a ti- it is a strangely tiring. Um, occupation. The good part and the bad part of it are almost the same thing. So I feel like you are never off duty as a writer. You could always be doing more. Everything you do, you should be taking notes on. That's how I feel always. Um, And if I'm not, I'm kind of slacking. But also the flip side of that is everything that happens to you feels like it might have some meaning. You know, it's all material, I say. And even when that's not true and you're not gonna write about something, you can kind of frame it in your head you know you have an awful train journey and it's terrible and you feel like shit you think well you know if this comes up in a book I'll know what to write it's a good way of like distancing yourself from something um and and also it teaches you to look at everything from the outside as well as from the inside that's a really handy thing to be able to look at your own circumstances and then think what other people might think of it and what a writer might think of it that kind of splinter of ice in the heart thing that's really useful if everybody did that we'd actually know we'd probably all be i think writers can be pretty unsympathetic as well so maybe we shouldn't encourage (laughs) that
0: true there's i I can immediately my mind can jump to some some writers who don't strike me as the most humane people in the world but um a a lot of us are uh, a a lot of us are, are, are reasonably nice people you know on a kind of like on a kind of global scale uh that's thank you so much for coming in and talking. I really appreciate your uh coming here and and and, and talking sort of so and and tolerating my kind of like wide-ranging sprawling questions. No, uh, I'm really excited to read the new book. So for um those of you listening, like I say in the show notes, I'll put links to Elizabeth is Missing and to Whistle in the Dark, which, depending on when you're listening to this, is either going to be available for pre-order. Pre-ordering books is really, really the most impactful thing you can do as a reader. It makes such a difference. So uh, if you if you will be uh, making a huge difference if you pre-order uh, the book. Of course, you can go to your local bookshop and do the same. Um, but if you can't reach a bricks and mortar place, I will put a link in the show notes and on my website final thing i wanted to ask you is now your book is out are you working on anything new (laughs)
1: uh oh my gosh not really i still my tour is about to start so i have quite a big book tour i'll be going to lots of different bookshops around the country and festivals um i have a 10 month old so she takes up quite a lot of time at the moment um but yeah, I'm wow. starting to think about it a
0: little Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> you feel that kind of like just tingling in the background. You go, no, 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 no. And then one day you're like, oh, gosh, this might, you might be, it's like a like a kind of like someone who kind of like creeps closer to the house. That's too creepy. And then No,
1: no, that's true. Like it is a, there's a kind of weird feeling that there's something you'll come back to or, I mean, I'm really not a fan of the whole get your word count up kind of writing. I think... For me that doesn't work and I think for a lot of people that doesn't work and they shouldn't do it like I'm actually really quite anti the word count style of um writing a book although I know it does work for some people um so I tend I not to write anything until I really feel that <laughs> weird Thing creeping up on me
0: because you're because your way I guess it's that is that's what inspiration is is breathing in and you're taking time to be a human in the world right do some reading do some experiencing
1: yeah yeah like you've drained all the experience into one novel and then you've got to like build it up again and then yeah that sounds kind of gross actually, yeah it does sound go, a
0: bit like kind of lancing boils, <laughs> but you know whatever whatever works for you but thanks so much for uh, coming on the show really enjoyed talking to you oh, no, it
1: was really
0: fun thank you very much and um, for everybody else uh, thanks very much for listening to the show if you have any questions comments concerns anything you'd like uh me to talk about on the show in the future then of course you can get in touch with me via my website timclepeau.co.uk. there's a little uh contact me uh tab on the right hand column click on that you can send me an email or if you just want to say hello I love hearing from you and thank you so much um for those of you who got in touch about getting going through the couch to 80k writing boot camp I'm really really enjoying hearing all your stories um of course if you'd like to uh, support me you can go and uh buy my book Um, and that's called The Honours, or you can go and click, I'll put a link to this as well, and there's a link on my website to my coffee page, that's ko-fi.com, and uh, if you want to drop me a few beans to help keep the lights on and uh, help pay for the hosting costs for the show, I would be churlish to refuse them, but uh, aside from that, I hope you have a wonderful week, I hope you found this uh, useful and enlightening, and I will see you soon.